So good evening, everyone. I haven't had the opportunity yet to say to this group just how truly thrilled I am to be here with you. The container of long retreat is so dear to my own heart and you're planting seeds of goodness so desperately needed in this world. So there's really no place I'd rather be than here. Tonight, I'd like to speak about some of the difficulties we encounter as the practice unfolds. Rebecca spoke about dukkha, a beautiful talk about our resistance to mental and physical experience and how dukkha is an inevitable part of what it means to be human. And one way that dukkha manifests that I think you probably know quite well for yourselves is through the hindrances. The presence of sensual desire, ill will or aversion, sleepiness and restlessness and doubt that are mind states uh, and habit patterns that we meet when we commit to a journey of awakening and do the practice in a sustained way. So most of you have heard probably several talks on the hindrances, and it's good to keep hearing talks on the hindrances because every time we hear a talk, we're not in quite the same place in our experience, in our mind, as we uh, were when we heard the talk before. And we work on one level or another with the hindrances until we're fully free. So whether you've been here for nearly a week or you've been here for almost seven weeks, I uh, trust that this topic will relate to some of what your experience is here. These hindrances are mind states that obscure clear seeing. And I want to be very clear that we don't wake up in spite of them. We actually wake up along with them. The hindrances become part of the um, fabric through which our understanding emerges. They become part of the path when we bring a skilled and wise and caring attention to our relationship with them. I can speak so confidently about this topic because let me tell you, I have had a lot of experience with the hindrances. I, uh, my first, my early years of practice, this was many years ago now, but my early years of practice were pretty much the experience of aversion and body pain and deeply doubting my own capacity to do the practice. And because the practice was so hard for me, not only did I doubt my capacity to do the practice, I doubted the practice, I doubted the teachings, you name it. The very first retreat I sat um, was a very difficult experience for me. It was where I live in Durango, Colorado, and they said to bring a pillow to the meditation hall. And so I grabbed a pillow from my bed, and I was <laughs> trying for days and days to sit um, on this pillow from my bed. And 
the way that walking instruction was given then was just, you know, this five-foot path with hands in prayer position. It, it was much more structured than some of the um, permission that we give in the instruction today. And I got home from the retreat, and I immediately went to take a nice hot bath. And I was sitting in the bathtub, and I decided, you know, that's the last time I am ever going to do something like that. You know, done, enough. And um, I was in the bathtub, just, you know, relaxing, so glad to be home. And this little thought popped into my mind. Hmm, I wonder when I might do my next retreat. And it was just, it was the very same day, and it surprised me that that happened so quickly. And part of why that happened, I know, is that something in me was touched very deeply. Although it was an experience of so much dukkha, something was touched in me that had to do with confidence in faith amidst my storms of aversion and doubt. There was a little bit more confidence in my own capacity to meet difficulty. There was a yogi who described this in an interview this morning. She described um, the confidence that comes from knowing how to really investigate. The confidence that comes from knowing how to be with experience. And this person described it as a, as a kind of fearlessness, that experience wasn't to be feared because they knew how to investigate and how to meet it. And so that's one of the real gifts in becoming fluent with, with dancing with these energies of desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt is that we don't need to get tight so much around the practice. We don't need to worry so much when it's not going exactly as we might wish. And for me, it's, it's been interesting what, what I've ended up being grateful for. Some of the areas of my own greatest struggle have actually been... Um, what has led me to deeper and deeper letting go, deeper and deeper um, understanding. And so often, you may not feel it in the moment, but it's often these places of real challenge where we end up being grateful because we learn. We learn a lot. We often have to get outside of our comfort zone to really learn to find our way. So, whatever you are dealing with here, And I really mean whatever you are dealing with here, whether you are planning your escape every 10 minutes or so, (laughs) whether you are in a time of loss or in a time of heartache, whether you are wondering if this is really a good use of your time or whether you're working with guilt, you know, really whatever you are working with here, these mind states are something that we we tend to see more clearly, more vividly on retreat, but they don't only happen on retreat, do they? You know, these are mind states that really drive the whole of our lives, and so often they're underground, we're just not aware of them, and they become um, more clear to us when we have all this time to be present with our experience. I was reflecting this afternoon about just the power of coming to do this kind of sacred work and the collective power 
that can come forth from a group like this, practicing in this way. When we consider, you know, the, the devastation happening to this beloved and living planet, when we consider the battles, the oppression, the injustice, the, the violence in this world, you know, it will not really transform itself through technology. It's not ultimately going to change through legislation even. You know, what is, what is really required is a transformation of the human heart. And that's what we are doing here. And it starts with um, each of our hearts, each of our consciousness, with the purification of making more and more of what's really driving our perceptions, making it um, known. Uh, So we start right where life meets us, with nothing left out. This is a poem by Steve Taylor. Speaks somewhat to this work we're doing here. It's called Become the Sky. This cage you've been trapped inside for longer than you can remember might seem so sturdy and secure that you don't even dream of escaping anymore like a bird that used to beat its wings, but now just lets them hang limply by its sides. But the bars of your cage aren't solid. They're a mirage made up of fears and desires projected by your restless mind and fueled by the attention you give them. Just for a moment, let your mind be quiet and see how fears evaporate. See how desires withdraw like the claws of an animal that's no longer threatened. Watch the bars melt away and let the world immerse you. Let your mind space merge with the space out there until there's only space without distinction. Stretch your wings and become the sky. I like the line especially that the bars of your cage aren't solid. They're a mirage made up of fears and desires. So mindful awareness is what begins to see, what begins to um, dissolve, really, that which stands between us and the deepest freedom. Hindrance. Some of these words, the translations, um, hindrance and sloth and torpor, they're very proper translations. The, the Pali word for hindrance is nivarana, and it is often translated sometimes as obstacle, and I really like the translation as covering, that the hindrances are a kind of covering, because when we relate with wise mindfulness, these difficult energies in our practice, actually, they, they, they're not obstacles. They become part of the path. And when we consider the translation of covering, it brings to mind, well, what is being covered? At least that's what it brings to my mind. What is being covered? 
from the Buddha, luminous monks, he's talking to us, right, to us, luminous monks is the mind, and it is defiled by incoming defilements. Luminous monks is the mind, and it is freed from incoming defilements. So we might consider that what is being covered is our basic goodness, our capacity for belonging and connection, the realization of our interconnectedness. What's being covered could be considered the source of contentment, the source of wisdom and understanding. And hindrances are like a spell that keeps us from seeing the deepest nature of our hearts and minds. Not just seeing, from experiencing directly the deepest nature of our hearts and minds. The hindrances are in the Satipatthana. In Satipatthana, they are within the fourth category, mindfulness of dhammas. And mindfulness of dhammas just means being aware, really, of how the teachings present themselves in our experience, being aware of different categories of experience. So when something happens, it's not just, oh, it feels like this. We recognize, oh, this is sense desire. We recognize, oh, restlessness feels like this. In his... uh, core instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha just goes through you know, the five hindrances, naming them. And he discusses what conditions, sub- that he discusses the importance of knowing what conditions support the arising and the ceasing of these mind states and what conditions can support them um, in not arising again. So this is part of where mindfulness gets really juicy It's um, having the clear comprehension, the context, to really understand the framework that helps us to understand our experience. And I'm going to speak a little bit about each of these hindrances. And as I'm talking, I I am much less interested in giving you a theoretical understanding of the hindrances. I'm I'm much more interested in um, supporting you in, in, as I said, developing a a wise relationship in actually knowing how to dance with these powerful energies of life that will move through us, that do move through us, that are inevitable. So as I'm talking, I invite you to just stay close, close to your experience with how you know aversion, how you know desire, how you know these, um, these coverings. When the Buddhist spoke about the hindrances, he talked about them as being, um, as, as overwhelming awareness and weakening discernment. And you can probably begin to see why it's so important to know how to work with these. You know that feeling, right, where you're just, the difficulties can become so strong, it feels very difficult to be mindful. And when that happens, we don't see so clearly. And we're here to develop awareness and discernment, so we study what's getting in the way. Sense desire, kamachanda. This is a, the kind of desire that has to do with gratification of the senses. It has to do with the acquisition of the next pleasant experience. Joseph spoke some about this last night. 
sense desire is seeking to have some kind of idealized experience. So we're living in this idea of what could be better? What could be more? And we can really live a long time in this world of idealization. And, you know, something that's idealized is it's a thought, it's an image. It's not, it's not reality. And so in this practice, we choose reality. We choose to be with the actuality of what is here. And desire, Brian talked when he gave the walking meditation instructions about orienting and about how we're mammals and how something mammals do is orient to the space around them. Something mammals also know how to do is, um, is hunt, <laughs> is to narrow the awareness on a particular object and kind of go for it. So the mind state of desire it has a way of narrowing the attention so that we are only focused on what we want. We are focused on having a better sitting. We're focused on the next meal. Maybe, you know, when the bell's going to ring. Maybe the first thing that you'll do when, you, when, you, when the retreat is over. And when the, desi- when the um, attention narrows in this way, we often don't realize it. We're just operating from that place. And we're not taking in all the other information that is happening. It's a very external orientation. And this practice is ever more deeply um, bringing the attention inward because you know how it is, right? When you get what you thought you wanted. There's a little bit of relief for a little while, maybe. But it's not because you actually got what you wanted. It's because the, uh, the fires of craving are temporarily cooled. So the relief isn't actually external. It's not actually in that thing. It's that the, the craving becomes less for a little while. Sometimes the presence of sense desire is, is really quite subtle. Has anyone been on a walk, you know, looking at these beautiful colors, these beautiful golds and reds? And um, maybe you've been out walking, aware of seeing, and then there's this idea of, oh, I wish, the, I wish those red leaves were still on the maples out there by where I walk. Huh, they were pretty good a few weeks ago. They're past their peak. Hmm, I wonder if I could find some more of those red leaves if I went and took a walk around the loop. You know, so it will take something pleasant, and the mind of desire will just ever um, so subtly sometimes Um, want a little more, add a little more. It's important to become familiar with how this is, that flavor in your own mind, to go from the experience of seeing and pleasant and then the extra of I want more. Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. (laughs) You're all so quiet. (laughs) Um, With all of these hindrances... Two of the primary instructions is to notice when they are present and to notice when they're absent. So if you have the mindfulness just to recognize, wow, my mind went from awareness of seeing, awareness of pleasant, to being halfway around the loop, just like that. Right there, you're, you're, you're um, 
just being aware of the desire is huge. And it's also really important to be aware when it's not there. I think if we didn't have moments where the hindrances were uh, lessened or at bay, (laughs) I think it would be hard to keep going in life. We do have moments where these qualities are not running the show. Moments of just having this in-breath be enough. Moments of just being completely present with a bite of food or listening to a talk. Moments where it's just right here, enough. With sense desire, once you recognize that this is what's happening, it's often helpful to remove the object from it and actually begin to really notice what it's like in the body and in the mind. So you might recognize, oh, there's all these thoughts about the leaves. Oh, wanting feels like this. Because it has a flavor in the mind. The, the Buddha used this simile of you know, a, an awake, clear mind being like a clear pool of water. And he used the simile for a mind filled with desire as being like a water with dye. So the dye colors the perception. The mind of desire will always find something to hang its hat on. So to remove the object and make the desire itself be the focus of the meditation, provided there's some stability and you can stay with that. Sayadaw Yutejaniya says, if desire arises because of a particular object, you should stop observing that object. It's not a Dhamma object, it's an object of desire. He says, the object you need to watch in such a situation is desire itself. Watch the feeling, the feeling that comes with the desire. I've been learning about this culture called the Moken. The Moken is a, um, a group of people, a tribe of sorts, of people who live off islands off the coast of Thailand, a little bit off the coast of Burma, and they're, they're known as sea gypsies. And I, I love snorkeling. I love the ocean. I love being in the ocean. And these people are fascinating to me because everything they need, just about everything they need, comes from the sea, and they can see twice as well as almost anybody else underwater, and they can hold their breath for very long periods of time to go uh, get food and other things that they need um, underwater. And something that intrigues me about the culture of these people is that they have no words in their culture. There's not the word want in, the, in their language. There's not the word want and there's not the word worry. Can you imagine <laughs> what it would be like to have grown up without the words want and worry? Because language shapes our views so much. Can you imagine what your perception would be like without want and without worry? Interestingly, these people, when the Horrible tsunami came in 2004, and so, so, so many people were killed and wounded. 
only one person from this tribe uh, died because they were paying such close attention to the sea and to the life around them that they noticed that the cicadas stopped chirping before the waves hit. They noticed that the dolphins were swimming into deeper waters and the elephants were going onto higher ground. And they'd had a prophecy uh, that had been told, you know, in the evening for uh, many generations about the great wave. But they were so tuned in and I just became curious about if the words want and worry were part of their culture, would they have noticed what they noticed to know to go to higher ground? It crossed my mind, you know, that the words want and worry are these stories of careening into the past and the future that really do impact our availability for immediacy for this moment. I was just curious about that uh, link there for them. So there's so many different skillful means with each of these hindrances. Sometimes we notice the mind state, we notice what's happening in the body, we notice the presence or absence of a hindrance. And sometimes the hindrances, I'm talking about desire, but this is true for any of them, sometimes they just are, are so strong, so strong that it seems difficult to be mindful. Um, I spent a month this fall being with a, a dear person in my life who I loved very much, who was in her dying process. That was most of my month of September. And for me, it was, a, um, it was probably the most difficult month of my adult life. It was even harder than any meditation retreat I've ever sat. It was also, in many ways, the most beautiful month of my adult life. And the experience held this range of emotion everywhere in between. You know, there was great love and great loss, and there were these huge waves of feeling for me hugely difficult mind states. I've been practicing for 20 years, and let me tell you, it's humbling sometimes when we practice and we practice, and sometimes these big waves just come. And when they do, there's really nowhere to go. I was sitting with, in some moments, just a deep, primal agitation about, not about the process of the dying, but about some of the way it was unfolding. And I was sitting with deep wanting, so much wanting it to be otherwise, and seeing the dukkha of that. And I noticed how sometimes I would try <laughs> to be mindful of my emotions. And there was this sense of in the trying to be mindful, what I was actually doing was operating with some sense that if I pay attention in the right way, I'm going to be able to corral this into being something much more neat and tidy. But that just wasn't how it was. And so there's a time, too, when, when the emotions can be, or the difficult mind states can be quite strong, that um, having any agenda is actually unhelpful. These are a few words from a man named Matt Lakata out of Boulder. I've been enjoying his work lately. He says, there's such a deeply rooted belief that we must do something with intense surges of feeling and emotion as they wash through. 
understand them, determine their cause, link them to some circumstance or person, change them, transform them, eliminate them or heal them. He says, what if for just one moment you did absolutely nothing in relation to the arising of emotional intensity? If you neither repressed nor denied it, nor urgently scrambled to seek relief from it, if you stayed close and made a commitment to non-abandonment for these wisdom gifts as they arrive? What if the most wise, loving, attuned response was to take no action, to not scramble to mend your broken heart, to not urgently spin to transform the sadness into happiness, and to not frenetically seek to heal your fear? These feelings and emotion are pure energy flow and information. This doing nothing is not a cold, passive resignation, but an alive, sacred activity infused with presence and a wild sort of compassion. That's just one view. But there's some wisdom in what he's saying. There's some wisdom in what what he's saying in terms of looking at our motivation around mindfulness of the hindrances and the practice of non-contention. You know, to get familiar with your own willingness to really... Um, know that oftentimes the most compassionate thing is, is really just to allow and not make ourselves too busy with trying to find the perfect an- antidote to um, an emotional state. Aversion, ill will, is a reaction to what is unpleasant on some level. The Pali word is patiga, which means striking against. And aversion has that feel, striking against. There can be a contraction, a sharpness to it, a pushing back. And we use this word aversion, but it's, a, it's kind of an umbrella term. It, you know, Rune Rebecca talked about her, how many was it, 45 kinds of anger bulldozing anger and simmering anger. Aversion's a little like that. There's um, hatred and jealousy and ill will and self-judgment and annoyance and irritation. All these different things fall under the umbrella of aversion. And just as we become very interested in what's pleasant, we may become equally as dissatisfied by what is unpleasant. I want to say that working with aversion, and we've all, if you haven't worked with aversion on this retreat, I'm sure you've worked with uh, with it on another retreat. And if you haven't worked with it on this retreat, it's probably just um, in there somewhere, (laughs) to be honest. But um, um, it takes so much kindness to work with aversion. As I'm talking to you, I just keep being aware of the beautiful Kuan Yin behind all of us with her beautiful crack down her heart because the wood is cracked as a reminder of the importance of care and kindness in the space of this practice. Um, the more loving and patient we can be with that reactivity of aversion, the more that it will help to settle 
And this is practice because the energy of aversion, it can very quickly escalate. Um, And there's a lot of righteousness in aversion. We're either knowing we're right most of the time or we're knowing we've been wronged. One of the two. And it can rev up so quickly that the mindfulness can go underground before we realize it. And it can be counterintuitive to bring a sense of kindness to the aversion because we often have so much judgment of ourselves, especially as people on a spiritual path. When there's aversion that comes up very quickly, what can come up next is, I'm not being a good Buddhist. I don't want to tell my teacher about this because I'm going to look so difficult. (laughs) We actually do want to hear about it. (laughs) We want to hear about what's real. So running away from aversion and trying to bypass it or cover it over with another layer, it just creates more suffering and more tension. And the, um, the willingness to be vulnerable enough to be real with ourselves about aversion when it's here, to choose to soften the belly just a little bit in the presence of this fiery, spicy energy um, is what begins to allow it to settle. Striking against takes a lot of energy, actually, just like holding on. It's exhausting. We're just so used to doing it. So often we get aversion with um, physical pain. (laughs) That's really common. You probably know that. With any unpleasant experience, if you don't like what's for lunch or if someone looks at you the wrong way and you feel a little bit offended in your idea of who you think you are. Um, Because the momentum of aversion is so strong, we often miss where it actually happens. Aversion arises when there's something unpleasant at one of the sense doors. It's very simple. We're seeing or hearing or touching or tasting something unpleasant or there's an unpleasant thought in the mind and woof, um, we have our ideas about it. And whole views can come out of this. When we can go to the root and just really be mindful of where the unpleasantness is happening, it's possible to just be mindful of something unpleasant with all the, without all the added papancha of aversion. I uh, sat a long retreat a long time ago at Spirit Rock. It was a month long in February. And this was actually my first month long retreat. I was so cold. I was coming from Colorado where I live and I thought, California in February, great. (laughs) I didn't bring any warm hats or mittens or I didn't bring my down coat. I was so cold and I had this place in the hall by the window and there is this woman whose job it was to open and close the windows. And let me tell you, I thought the windows were open too much the whole month. I was so cold and I ended up borrowing. Guy actually let me use his coat and his mittens Um, (laughs) and I was cold, and I started paying attention to the woman who was opening the window. (laughs) And I was on to her. (laughs) I tell you what, and then I started noticing, huh, it's not only that she's opening the window too much, 
know, she goes into the dining area and just throws her stuff all over. And then I was thinking, look at her go through the lunch line. She's like wiping her nose and, you know, holding the utensils. It's just this whole thing for me on the retreat. I was, I was not her fan. So that was one thing that was happening. And I was quite convinced of it. And then the other thing that started happening the last week of the retreat is the person in the room next to me at night was crying when the walls were thin. And I could hear this woman weeping. And I felt so much compassion for this person next to me who was weeping. And um, the last week of the retreat, I just thought, I don't know what this person is going through. And I just wanted to go give, give them a hug, even though I didn't do that, of course. And the last few days of the retreat, you know, we started breaking silence. We weren't guarding our sense doors as much. We were looking around more. And so I started looking around in the dorm. And the woman who walked out of the room next to me was the woman who was opening the windows. It was such a teaching for me, really. Because what I realized had happened is I was cold in the meditation hall. It was unpleasant. The mind state was aversion. And the aversion went to the closest person, her. And then from that, I developed this whole story about her, right? Because I was cold and the mind was in aversion. It was never about her. The mind was in aversion looking for an object. And there was some righteousness about it. This was my first retreat. I have to be gentle with myself as I tell that story. But um, what I noticed is that the same person doing something else in another context, what it brought out was compassion for me. And it was just such a teaching for me. And the, the piece in this is to notice where it starts because we will build a whole reality. And if the mind is in aversion, it's a very good idea to be skeptical about what your views are. The same is true for a mind that's in desire. The Buddha talked about a mind of aversion being like a water that's heated to a boil. We're, we're, so, we're too hot for the coolness of clarity. You can't see clearly when water is boiling. So with aversion, even though there can be such a feeling of activation, it is very important to slow it down and really notice what's happening in the body. To drop the story and get present with the actual sensations, whether there's a feeling of heat or a kind of mild or not mild tightening of the belly and the arms. Sometimes for me, I first become aware of the mind state of aversion by noticing something in the body. When my jaw is tight, often, oh, why is my jaw so tight? Oh, wow, I'm a little angry. And so it's, it's often actually the, the body that will um, give information about the mind state. So aversion arises, aversion passes. Thankfully, as per Joseph's talk last night, it arises and it passes. And if you're having a lot of aversion here, the, the other thing, honestly, you know, it's interesting how on retreat, the mind can, can really circle back around to something that brings up aversion. And most, for the most part, there's nothing we can do about it here. You don't have your phone. You could write notes to us. You're not talking to each other. It's just this question of, Wow, it's not even that productive here. 
One more thing about being in the body with aversion is to notice what lens of attention is helpful. Sometimes when there's that activation of aversion, we need a very precise uh, focus to really notice the way that sensations are changing moment by moment. Or sometimes there's so much energy that what's helpful is to really just settle back, let the awareness be quite expansive, and just observe from that place. So check it out with what, with what is supportive for you in investigating. The third of the hindrances, sloth and torpor. Have you ever seen a sloth move? They move so slowly and they sleep for 15 hours a day. They um, have this low body temperature so they don't need to eat very much. And so sloth is that quality of just being lazy and slow. And torpor is like a wet fog that descends on the mind, you know, where there's just not the clarity. It's kind of summed up in the experience of sleepiness, feeling of dullness. If you think you're dealing with a lot of sloth and torpor, this might make you feel a little bit better. This is by Anthony DeMello. Maybe some of you know him. He was a wonderful spiritual teacher, an East Indian Jesuit priest. He says, last year on Spanish television, I heard a story about a gentleman who knocks on his son's door. Jaime, he says, wake up. Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. The father shouts, get up, you have to go to school. Jaime says, I don't want to go to school. Why not? asks the father. Three reasons, says Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father says, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you're 45 years old. (laughs) And third, because you're the headmaster. (laughs) Wake up. (laughs) You've grown up. You're too big to be asleep. (laughs) Wake up. (laughs) So we're not that bad off. (laughs) Um... If you're dealing with sloth and torpor, just bringing in more energy, you know, noting a lot more can be very helpful for the kind of sleepiness. I don't know if we've talked about standing up in the hall, but if you're dealing with great sleepiness, you can do standing meditation. Open your eyes quietly, mindfully come into the standing posture. You don't usually fall asleep standing. Um, and notice actually what's happening with the eyes and the temple. To really pay attention to actually the eyes and the temple can be very good practice for sleepiness. The basics. If you eat too much, you're probably going to be sleepier. If you don't do walking meditation, you may also be sleepier. The Buddha talked about sloth and torpor as being like water overgrown with algae. It's kind of that feeling of stagnation. 
restlessness is is the opposite. There's kind of pairs, desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness. And um, we all know what restlessness feels like, is that flutteriness, wanting to jump out of your skin, feeling rattled or speedy. The first years of my practice, I didn't have a single sit that I didn't feel restless. Being with restlessness was was the practice. And uh, the Pali word for restlessness, yudaka, means shaking above. I really, I also like that translation, shaking above like a kind of hovering. A Buddha used the simile of, of restlessness as being like water that is stirred by the wind, kind of feeling of being tossed about and Sometimes restlessness is it's just an imbalance of energy. Sometimes with restlessness comes a, a bit of worry or remorse or anxiety. When we come on a retreat like this, part of the process of purification, it's so natural and so common that all these things sometimes that you might not have thought about for years or even decades Sometimes we'll think of things we've done that we wish we hadn't done. It's just part of this um, purification that, that comes up and it can create a kind of remorse that can, that can manifest as the energy of unsettledness and it's really, really important not to get stuck here. Work with your teacher if that's what's happening. Self-forgiveness can be helpful. But... Often just this quality of restlessness is a, a lot of energy and something that helps me when I feel restless is to really sense my bones when I sit. To take a little time to focus on the quality of really the earth element, the solidity and the density and the heaviness and the firmness of the bones to direct the energy from maybe the restlessness to uh, sensing how it is to sit in the earth element, to sit in the density of the body, particularly the bones. And some of the restlessness that we experience, I think is really just this nervous system of, of, there's so many different cultures sitting in the room, so I can't say of one culture but I know in the culture I live in, uh, it's like, it's almost like there's two speeds in our system. There's being on and being productive, and there's being kind of spaced out and not paying attention. And so our systems keep learning this uh, tranquil alertness that we cultivate in the practice of meditation. Sometimes just looking up at the night sky if you have a lot of restlessness. Looking around, giving more space, being aware of hearing. Last but not least, doubt. Doubt is the fifth hindrance. A mind caught in doubt will question your capacity to do this practice, will question 
Actually, question's not the right word because there is a kind of doubt that's a healthy questioning, a healthy skepticism. Ehipasako, find out for yourself. So we're not really asking you to take our word for any of this, nor did the Buddha. We are inviting you to investigate for yourself. Doubt um, is like a wrong view that masquerades as wisdom. Oh, I don't really know. It's kind of a quality of being suspicious. Of It can be the teachers, the teachings, the practice. And it's very important to know for each of you what your voice of doubt is. Because when we're caught in it, we don't say, oh, this is wrong view, this is doubt. We believe it, like our face is pressed against that glass. You know, we're just, we're in it. So to know what is your story of doubt. The Buddha had doubt. You know, it's kind of neat when you think about it, the Buddha and Mara, because there's a lot of stories about the Buddha and Mara. (laughs) So the Buddha didn't become the Buddha without really getting to know Mara. Just like we don't awaken fully without really traveling the territory of the hindrances. The evening of the Buddha's enlightenment when he sat down under the Bodhi tree, you know, one of the things that this personification of the defilements, Mara, Mara kind of said, you know, who do you think you are to think you can wake up fully? Who do you think you are? That's, that's doubt in the mind. And, you know, the Buddha touched the earth with earth as my witness. You know, like I have a right to be here. I have a right to wake up. Me too. And as the path progresses, doubt, doubt really lessens. In the beginning, we have to trust a little bit. We have to lean in. You're all not at the very beginning because you're here on this long retreat. But the resolution of doubt doesn't come from the rational mind. If you're working with doubt, you're developing faith and the resolution has more to do, I believe, with the heart. It has more to do with what we've known, what we've really come to see for ourselves. It's what I was saying when I sat my first retreat and I got home and there was something in me that had been touched even though it was so hard. There was something in me that wanted to know more, that had been impacted. So when we expect certainty from the thinking mind, we will experience doubt. Um, working with doubt, we need to look at the, the mode through which we're operating and um, take refuge in the direct knowing. Ajahn Suchito puts it like this. He says, you know, that, for example, if you're having doubt about your worth or your capacity to do the practice, he says, this has to be experienced, not as a matter of opinion, but through directly acknowledging specific qualities, skillful and unskillful in the present moment. He says, what we can know directly is that love or irritation, sadness or joy, forms a changing mixture of qualities, and it's not a fixed personal possession. All that really rests with us is the awareness of that changing flux. Of this there is no doubt. 
So if you're working with doubt, you might look at where are you trying to get your answers from. If the thinking mind is reaching into trying to have something to know for sure, you know, as Joseph said, anything can happen at any time. That that's not the the kind of wisdom this practice teaches. You know, we're we're developing wisdom that doesn't come from thinking, but that comes from meeting our direct experience and leads to realization. So doubt is really at its core, it's an emotional problem. It's a kind of wavering or indecision that keeps us from committing fully to a certain path. Buddha talked about doubt as being like dark and muddy water, that it obscures in that way. It's important to work with doubt, talk to your teacher if you're really dealing with doubt, because it really can um, be quite debilitating in the practice. And as doubt transforms, as doubt gives way and we trust the practice, we take refuge in the moment because that's all there is, the quality of refuge really does deepen. Refuge becomes something that means a great deal to us. Refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, in in the Sangha, a place where we can really land and have confidence and know the true source of peace and ease. So as I'm talking about all these (laughs) different hindrances and various approaches to meeting the arisings, what's important, what's most important is to know that the hindrances are coverings. They are just coverings. They are just events being known. There's a difference between being aware of aversion, aversion being known, and taking up the identity. I'm at it again, I'm so aversive. There's a big difference there. This is experience um, being known. And in order to know these hindrances, we really need to know, we need to suspend judgment enough to be able to actually touch them in our experience. And when we come into balance, because working with hindrances is really, a lot of what we're creating here is a balance in the mind and heart. And when we're in balance, we create the conditions for wisdom to do its work so that we don't let go of the hindrances, but the wisdom really is what lets go of the hindrances. The wisdom is what sees their nature, which is Dhamma nature, which is impermanent, not who we are, and unsatisfactory, really. So um, as we know hindrances, we also know moments where the mind is unhindered. And it's so important to really show up fully for moments when the mind, when we're not hindered, when there is clear seeing, there is contentment, there's a balance of energy in the body and in the mind. I'll just close with a poem by Jennifer Wellwood. Actually, I think I forgot to bring it, so I'm going to close with some words from Deepama. 
Deepama really incredibly realized being who has had such a profound impact on some of our teachers. She says, there's so much sameness in ordinary life. We're always experiencing everything through the same set of lenses. Once greed, hatred, and delusion are gone, you see everything fresh and new all the time. Every moment is new. Life was dull before, now, every day, every moment is full of taste and zest. That is the unhindered mind. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for your attention.